Hey all you cool cats and kittens, welcome to The Black Codes. This is your co-host Savannah Bryant, your resident historian with my lovely friend Donald Robinson. Bow wow wow, yippee yo, yippee yay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, yeah, so we're here for another episode of The Black Codes. Um, I had a kind of, I don't want to say a trying week, but obviously there was a lot of stuff happening in the news. And in order for me to kind of just administer some self-care, because I have so much going on, I'm not in a place, I would rather not be angry and wanting to punch someone in the face. So for me, I really have to step away from social media at times, which has been tricky because I kind of been like over the last few years really removed myself from social media and I come up especially on Facebook I like to share things that I think are important um Instagram is really cool and I use it as a mainly as a source of inspiration like there's so much art and fashion and food and cocktails like I architecture I love Instagram for that but sometimes when there are things going on, you you have to just break away because especially if you start reading comments, wow, that will take you to a place. <laughs> It'll take you to a dark place. And I'm not trying to go there. So this week, we, well, I guess this episode and maybe a few more in the future, um, we decided to switch places given what has happened in the news and I don't want to say my inability but my hesitance and wanting to really personally have to even think about the police like I don't like I don't even like I just I'm I what are the words? They escape me. That's just like where my frustration lies. And Donald has a bit stronger mental fortitude in this aspect than I do. (laughs) So he has taken the reins and will be giving us some information that I think is really important for all of us as American citizens that are policed, that are supposed to be protected, that are supposed to be able to live freely and safely in this country. Uh, Donald is gonna kind of take the reins on this one topic, and maybe some topics in the future, but right now, this topic, he just, I had to pass the baton over. (laughs) And so, um, thank you. And our faithful listeners who, of course, like, this episode, shared this with somebody and is, or subscribe to the Black Codes. And if you aren't one of those people, you should do that. You should. A lot of the other episodes, actually, not a lot, all of the other episodes, when she <laughs> talks about changing it up, Savannah is the resident historian. I do not give her those great intros for no reason because she is the brains and so she does a lot of the research and organizes how these things go. And I um, decided to pull my grad school roots out of looking at research and making presentations on it and deciding to, to take this one out. So what we're going to look at here today is the history of policing. What are some key things that have happened in policing in America to help us understand how a decision 
like the decision that got made in Breonna Taylor's case got to be made. Mm -hmm. And looking at, we can't really understand American policing until we actually understand all the phases of American policing. And so we're going to kind of take a little dive into that and look at some... um, some interesting stories, uh, and then just kind of just really give you some certain things that you can go ahead and look into. Yeah, so I didn't do what you generally do, which is shout out what we're drinking. We're not drinking anything special tonight. We had a kind of a, a crazy you day. Not. <laughs> You're not either. So Do- Donald is drinking, um, well, he's not drinking a proper Baltimore special because he doesn't have a shot of whiskey, but he's drinking a Natty Bell, which is like the Baltimore beer. If you go to like a Ravens game or an Orioles game or any of the local bars in Baltimore, Natty Bell, you can get it in a can, you can get it on tap. It's pretty cheap. It's like the cheap water beer is like what I call like not like Bud Light but kind of along it's uh, gotta be better than Bud Light I've had Bud Light I'll never do it again for sure but it's not like a craft high class beer it's below my standards it it gets the job done and I'm drinking just like a cheap red wine like a red wine that someone had I honestly don't even know how that bottle ended up here (laughs) (laughs) because I don't buy that brand of wine and I will not repeat it um, I will not repeat what it is, and neither will you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm still upset that I forgot the daggone Henny White. So one of my members Yo, at my gym gave Donald. me a bottle of Henny White, and I was supposed to bring it. He wanted me to be able to shout it out on the podcast when he listened to it. He had went on some Caribbean trip and bought, like, many, many bottles and sold them for, like, 5x the price because you can't buy it up here. And it was like, oh, yeah, here, take this for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm on Turnpike, and I'm like, man, good job. I got everything, and I packed up pretty fast. And then I'm like an hour outside of Baltimore, and I'm just like, shit, I forgot the Hennessy. Yeah, so I didn't even know you were bringing it. And then and then you had the fucking nerve. Because you could have kept that to yourself. (laughs) Then you text me to let me know. Like, yo, I forgot the Henny White. Like, I didn't even know you were bringing it. So now I'm upset because... (laughs) That would have been great to have. I Hennessy, regular Hennessy is not that great. Um, but Henny White is actually nice. It's super smooth. And, you know, I like to have, um, like, cognacs and scotches and whiskey, like, sometimes just with an ice cube because they're really good. They don't need to be mixed with anything. Like, they're good on their own. And uh, the pure white Hennessy is definitely one of those things. So... I hope that the next. I hope you don't open it and get fucked up on your own. Like I hope you save nah. it for the next time you come down. So we'll I've, see. I've actually only drank alone on very few occasions. Now, outside of a couple times where I've been out to eat by myself and I might have had like a glass of wine with my food, me drinking alone's never really been a thing. Mm-hmm. I remember in grad school one time I was in Austin. It was this dude I had met like in a nearby housing apartment who, um, how did we become friends? I, del- I was delivering pizzas and I delivered him a pizza and he had on like a George Clinton shirt and he was the only other person I knew who was like my age that mm-hmm. wore a George Clinton shirt. And so I was like, oh, I have a similar shirt because I had my George Clinton shirt I bought in college and literally I found it on a Facebook ad and was like, oh, I'm getting that. Yo, and I remember that fucking shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so meeting up with that dude, I was at the crib and I was like, oh, I got a six pack. And I was like, all right, let me drink these before I get on the bus to go to the bar. Out to the club, and then the only other time, I drink these like you drank a six pack of beers. I drank like went. three or four of them. Damn, how much has changed? You are not doing that anymore. Well, that was only a one time thing, Word. but like if you remember senior year before uh homecoming weekend, <laughs> there was that me and Todd uh took down an entire thing of Henny, but like I took like 70 80 percent of it down. Mm-hmm. It was E and J, and that was the night that I put it in the oatmeal. Yo, <laughs> what? And I, ha- I was like on a high horse about having finished the whole like fifth. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I, I either don't know this or I forgot. So like you put it, you like made the oatmeal with the Hennessy. Okay, so for our, um, any of my teen followers who are listening to this, just close your ears for the next few <laughs> So this was senior year homecoming weekend and that uh, was a big year for us so it was we were yo we were like we got a lot of backstory the, we're gonna talk about some backstory we right were here killing the game with bas yeah so and we had had a success so bas had like a history what is of having, BAS? having so bas like the black action society at slippery rock that we were both on the executive board of our junior and our senior year but the BAS had had a long-standing history of having like fights break out in the middle of the party and would shut the shit down before it even was supposed to end. And our junior year, we had had a successful party. Like we had made a bunch of money. No one fought. It was it was great. It worked out perfectly. Um, and I think I don't. The really, welcome back our senior year also went smooth. Yeah, it did. So we we're hyped. You know, like we're just kind of words. So, and then you, I think about you, our senior year. Okay, so tell me more about this Oatmeal Hennessy situation. So this week, that weekend, um, me and Todd were playing Madden. And we were playing Madden for shots, and I had uh, I had eaten a good amount that day. And I had uh, gotten uh, a bottle of E&J. I was actually E&J. And so I was cooking, and I was making some hamburger helper. <laughs> but the hamburger herbal was taking long, and I was hungry, and I wanted to get through this alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I had made some oatmeal. Mm-hmm. But me and Todd were shots in because we were playing Madden. And so Madden's a football game, and basically for the listeners. And so every time someone got a first down, they had to take a shot. If it was a score, you had to take a shot. If you turned the ball over, you had to take a shot. And oh, wow. So, so it got real. And who were you playing? Do you know what team? I have no idea. Me and Todd were playing against each other. Okay, I noticed some people have like eighteen. Oh, I don't. Always okay. Yeah, I don't. I think the whole fan thing is like overrated. I I don't like the idea of being fanatical about something. The Steelers are my preferred team, but don't call me a Steelers fan. Although I do have a terrible towel. Do you feel like fan is derogatory? Um, I think it should be. I don't understand. Like, I didn't realize, this is another tangent, but I didn't realize this how bad fandom was until the first time I went to Cleveland, I expected Cleveland to be a shit dump of a oh. city because it's the Browns. And, like, yeah. I'm not a huge basketball guy, so I didn't associate with the Cavs, which the Cavs also suck when LeBron's not there anyways. Mm-hmm. So I just associated it with trash because the city's sports team sucks. And it's Ohio. But Cleveland actually has some nice parks. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of people that live here. Oh, Cleveland looked like better than Pittsburgh in a lot of these spots. Yeah, apparently, And I was like, all that was influenced by a football team. Yeah, apparently, like, 
Cleveland and Cincinnati are like pretty cool cities. And it's like, <laughs> who would have thought? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then coming to Baltimore, like, you know, coming down here and hanging out with you and everything, it's like, oh, Baltimore is nice. But people got Baltimore fucked up because it was. We were just talking about this earlier. It was it was coined the most charming city in America at one point. The Wire has y'all niggas fucked up <laughs> in thinking that all of Baltimore looks like the fucking hood. It does not. The Wire and the Wire definitely was my introduction to Baltimore when I was way younger. And then um, the whole Steelers and Ravens thing. I just thought. I thought Baltimore was better than Cleveland, but I still thought it was going to be a shitty place because it was like a rival to Pittsburgh. And I was like, I can't believe I let sports influence my thinking of another geographical location about a bunch of people who don't play for the team Mm -hmm. that have nothing really to do with the team and how that influences thoughts. But at any rate, I I, I didn't have a particular team in this Madden game. So... I had eaten oatmeal, and we were, we, were, we were already beyond tipsy. We were drunk at this point. And Todd was like, one of us mentioned something about putting it in the oatmeal, and I don't know who started the conversation. Oh, my God. And I was like, I bet I will. And so I legitimately poured, not a lot of it, but like maybe like half a shot's worth, maybe almost a shot's worth, into the oatmeal. And how did, do you even remember? It was not pleasant. Yeah. But I ended up putting enough sugar in the oatmeal to mm-hmm. kind of override it a bit. Then I had the hamburger couple later. Later, and then the story goes on. We finished it. Me and Todd and I believe it was Tyree. We went to this party um, in some part of Slippery Rock, and I finished it off. And there was a cop coming down, so I had thrown it in this dumpster, and then proceeded to throw my guts out. Oh my god! Ugh. <laughs> and so the cop pulls up next to us, and this was one of these little moments where like there's three of us. Me, Tyree, and Todd, and there's a police officer, so mm-hmm. we're very nervous. We, I and can't speak we're for in them. Western Pennsylvania. We're in Slippery Rock. Yeah, places. but was, not everyone knows where Slippery Rock is located. Uh, Northwestern Pennsylvania is yeah. an old country school. Not a fun time for blacks. Yeah, no. Um, I've had you know more than a fair share of interactions, but at any rate, this guy, the cop, pulls up, and I'm throwing up. But like I had just finished as he got there, and I had just started. I had just signed up for a philosophy major, and so I went, you already know I can talk, so I just went rambling. Do I? Because, you know, (laughs) part of, in one of our episodes, we talked about the presumption of innocence of Mm -hmm. black people not having the presumption of innocence and having to justify our lives to whites, especially the police. So in this moment, I'm justifying my entire existence to this man. I was like... Oh, you know, I'm a senior. I just declared a philosophy major. And I was excited about that. But that was immediately what came out. I was like, yeah, senior exercise science student. Just got my philosophy major. Hanging out with my friends. And he's like, are you okay? I was like, yeah. You know, done drinking. But, like, I had, me, I just explained me and Todd playing drunk Madden. I was like, yeah, we were playing, you know, Madden for some shots. Because at this point, I I felt like he wasn't being hostile. So at that point that his hostility was down. Oh, I just was just having fun. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we were playing mine for shots. And so I had some oatmeal. And then I had some um, hamburger helper. And he looked at my pile of throat. And he was like. Oh, I can see it. Oh, he's like, yeah, I can see that. And he's like, actually, you must not really be that drunk. I'm actually well-spoken when I'm drunk. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I pull the reins in. And I was like, he was like, yeah, you actually don't seem like you're that drunk. It seems like you threw it because you mixed oatmeal with hamburger helper. And he was very disgusted that I ate those two <laughs> foods together. I'm not gonna lie I'm a little disgusted but because I know like I'm seeing this in past you know like that was a past thing 
So my, I guess my judgment is a little bit less. <laughs> Had you have told me this in the moment, I would have been like, Donald, why would you ever fucking do oatmeal <laughs> and hamburger helper? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my God. For our listeners, while I am beyond my E&J years, and I now drink Crown as my preferred brown drink of Upgraded. Mm-hmm. Tyree taught me a trick that he learned from, I forget who he learned it from. If you cut E&J with lemonade, it knocks the bitterness so smooth out of it. Okay. Um, I don't know what it is about the lemonade, but it knocks the bitterness straight out. Hmm. Uh, Maybe it's I, the acetic acid. Yeah, I wonder if it's because of the lemon. Um, honestly, I don't know. I don't know that I've had like a... A brandy or a cognac or a whiskey or a bourbon mixed with lemonade. That's interesting. Won't have it now because it's cold, but maybe you could persuade me into trying it in the summertime? Maybe. Maybe not because I just don't plan to drink E&J ever again. Not necessarily E&J, but like a brandy or just like a brown liquor just to see if... um, the lemonade masked the aggressiveness of the brandy or if it actually pairs well with it, you know? Mm. But this is not an alcohol <laughs> podcast, at least not yet. <laughs> at least not yet. So, you know, we mentioned the police and interactions, and there are a lot of interactions with the police uh, that we see where, you know, our inter- our interactions with them end up fatal, especially black people's interactions with them. And in that situation, luckily, mine's did not. This was, you know, a guy who recognized was just another drunk college student. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for that. And so when we look at what does it mean to be, you know, doing police work, there's a lot of movements talking about defunding the police, abolishing the police. And there are a lot of people pushing back against that, like, no, we need our police. And so we want to take a look at what exactly, what actually has been policing in the United States over the, you know, millennia? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of feelings and opinions and really understanding, but this is, I think our general mission is there's a lot of shit that we're dealing with today that has roots, you know, like it's, we're not dealing with something that was created literally yesterday and now we're dealing with that thing that was created yesterday today we're dealing with things that have had years and years and decades you know centuries in some cases like just time to manifest themselves in all different ways and sprout additional legs and we get really caught up in the day-to-day in the present without really understanding just how impactful some of some of the things that we deal with how impactful and how important the history is so donald you are gonna kind of walk us through memory lane (laughs) with the police and tell us a little bit more about them who they are where they come from their foundings and how the police has, you know, kind of changed and morphed and turned throughout the last few centuries in America. So we're going to talk about this in a few phases, but we're going to start with the pre-20th century. 
and the very origins of policing in the U.S. Now, as of many things, the United States tries to distance itself from England as much as possible, yet in actual practice, it does so many things that are very, very similar to the British. And it starts off with a lot of night watches, which were a thing that were also happening in Britain. And so these night watches were basically a bunch of men in the community who were out, um, you know, patrolling at night, kind of looking for fires, which were a big thing when you think about uh, having fires in the house to do lighting uh, and a lot of wood and just environmental concerns. So they were a lot of uh, kind of like pre-firefighters, basically, looking out for crime, you know, like robberies, burglaries, um, weird activities. And now, probably to some extent, if you're thinking about these night watchers happening in like the 1600s, you have the famous case of like Paul Revere and the British are coming. Like that happens as like a night watch. Granted, it's a little bit, the block is hotter because the UK and the US has, or the colonies have tension. Um, so they're watching for, for another reason, but this whole night watch thing, like that's what that is. Like they're kind of like just out and about, scoping out the scene, making sure nothing wild is happening. And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of it. Now, that feature was very prominent in the North. Mm-hmm. But in the South, things got a little different. And in the South, you actually found your very first state-sponsored police forces. And this was, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, And those state-backed police forces were called slave patrols, people. The paddy rollers. Yeah, I mean, think about what is important at this time in the South. The South is, you know, dominated. Like, slavery is the industry. That is how they're making all of their money. If slaves start running away, that's a problem. We can't have that. So we need to have people out there. If people are running away, we need to have people out there that can go and capture them and bring them back. And remember that even now, a big role of police is to protect property. Yeah. And when you look at even Breonna Taylor's case, a piece of property, you know, the uh, walls, Mm -hmm. so to say, and and it's not exactly that, but spitefully it is, got more justice than she did, you know? Yeah. And even like what they went in for, drugs being, you can have whatever argument you want to have about the ethicalness of drugs, selling drugs, whatever, but drugs are still property that I guess is unlawful in that case. And mm-hmm. But to the extent of this um, substance, capturing it and getting it, quote unquote, off the streets or out of civilian hands is more important to a life. Mm-hmm. And so slaves at this time were property. Mm-hmm. And when you think about who happily deals with police versus who doesn't, people who generally own more property, who have more affluent standing, their interactions with police tend to be much more pleasant than the people who um, don't own the property. And when you look at people who riot and a lot of the things that go on, people are like, oh, you shouldn't burn down all the property. And not to say that they should necessarily burn down the property, but you see this 
recurring theme over the decades and centuries yeah. of caring a lot more about property than you do about actual people. And at this time of slavery, those people were property, which is why slave patrols were the first state-backed yeah. you know, police forces there. And it's even thinking about that today, like that ingrained idea that that slaves, black people are essentially property is, I think, a stand like a standing point and why people will come out and argue for protecting property or, oh, why do they have to destroy businesses or you're burning shit down because people's lives, people are losing their lives, but because in some people's eyes, they might not say that they still think black people are property, but we're so less than that physical structures are still more important than black lives, like the black body, like the property, like black people being property is less, should be um, protected less than a fucking structure. Meanwhile, when you look at some of these different wars, you have the American ideal of, you know, independence and democracy Mm -hmm. and capitalism that are maybe rejected by other countries and other civilizations and or they're, you know, not free as we like to look at it. And so we decide that we need to go and free them. And that generally involves the destruction of a whole lot of property to defend an ideal and to push an idea. Mm -hmm. And yet people feel a type of way when people want to destroy property that's not theirs, that they don't own, that they won't miss because people are dying and not getting justice. Yeah. And so when we look at, um, you know, the beginning of policing, there were the night watches in the north Mm -hmm. and then the slave patrols of the south. And even as the western frontier was more explored... These actual traditions often carried with them. Northern settlers who went west did more of a night watchy thing. Mm-hmm. The southerners who went west had more of a patrol and property controlling sense, and you know they would bring slaves to certain states the as well. The sense of entitlement that mm-hmm. wherever they step, they are now the people that are protecting the land that they walk on, mm-hmm. even though it's not their shit. Yeah. And on the other part of that, and we're not going to get too deep into this, but the West is where you start getting the true vigilantes because as you go into uncharted territory, there aren't exactly rules. Mm -hmm. Literally the Wild West. (laughs) Yeah. There's this funny thing from that, uh, the book series. I finally finished the Expanse series last week. Thank (laughs) God. And so there's this one particular book where they are on this other planet and Mm -hmm. it's the first kind of human colony out of there. And so this company goes to, like, handle the mining rights and kind of take over. But there were already settlers there. And there's this scene at the end of it where the main character and this antagonist who was a ruthless uh, security director from the company that Earth had sent out there. And he, was, he mentioned this thing that when you are building a new frontier, you need people like me who are ruthless, who can find wrong when it's just wrong and go and set the tone for how things are going to go. And that often involves bloodshed. Then there are people like you, to the main character, who's like the positive idealist kind of guy. There are people like you who bring the mailboxes and society and you know all of the things that make things structured. But you need me to do it. And it describes the Wild West very well. P.S. No the fuck we don't. Because you can keep your ass where the fuck you belong and leave niggas 
in peace. <laughs> no one asked you to come here and put your fucking boot on someone's neck. Mm-hmm. You can actually keep your ass where you were from and leave us the fuck alone. Mm-hmm. And so that describes the early part of policing. When we look at going into the 1800s, there's a bit more of a organization and professionalism brought to policing throughout the 19th century. And so you start getting cities like Boston in 1838, who had the first like city police force, as well as other major cities over the coming decades had like city police forces. And there's a couple uh, key features about policing. And we look at um, American policing, and it's about having limited power, because this American ideal was that it should be small government at the yeah. time. So they had limited power. In, re- in reference to maybe like Eastern European countries where I read a lot of it com- being compared to where the police could kind of just arrest anybody they wanted to for pretty much anything. Yeah, and there are certain countries where the police force itself, which we will get to at some point, but the, le- but the police force itself moves as like the military, you know, and they are kind of like a military force. They're not just there to protect and serve and make sure everyone is safe and shit. Like, they come in with with kind of, like, this energy of we are here to kill, steal, and destroy. Yeah. You know, like, we're here to fuck shit up if y'all fuck with us, if y'all piss us off. If you step out of line in a way that we think is out of line, like, mm-hmm. we're going to do what we deem fit. And there's actually a law that the United States passes uh, later on, a few decades later, uh, called the Posse Comitas Act, which separates the role of law enforcement from military. Mm-hmm. That we'll talk about later during the war on drugs there, it kind of gets reversed a little bit. But in looking at um, the 1800s, you also get uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so law enforcement from, went from slave patrols now to largely KKK acts as well as the Black Codes, which is the namesake of the actual podcast, when they created a series of rules and regulations for black people because now the, the loophole of the ending of slavery was if you, could get, if you got arrested, you were a subject to be a slave again as long as you had a crime. And so they would take all these petty crimes like loitering, being out on curfew. Not having a job. Not having a job. And you could get arrested and sent to prison for that, and then, boom, you can go right back to slave labor. And so that was the end of the 1800s due the um, Reconstruction period. And as black, the Black Coats ended in 1877, as our good old friend, um, what was his name? Our friend from South Carolina. Benjamin Tillman. Pitchfork Fuck ben. you. <laughs> yeah. Pitchfork Tillman or Pitchfork Ben. I don't yeah. know. One of the who cares? With you. <laughs> we'll have something about him later. But during <laughs> this time, as Reconstruction ended and the South wanted away with the North kind of putting their clamps on how we should handle black people down there, um, we went into the Jim Crow era. And as we go into the 1900s, we have some very big changes to policing. Before you get to that, I do think it's important to note that there is some policing that changes in the North, and it mostly comes out of this need to kind of police the new immigrants that are coming um, from Ireland, from Italy, from Scotland, just, you know, from Europe. You have a influx of European immigrants coming into America, and specifically the North, like major... um, 
northern cities like Chicago, like New York, like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and the police are essentially like they kind of start to form really only to police these immigrants because they're degenerates, they're crime ridden, they're prostituting, and now we have they're they're anti-American and they're anti-American way of life. So now we have to go in and police them. And I think that it's just it's really fascinating how in the North and in the South, these two factions of what the police will come to be come out of trying to I don't even want to say police but but policing two groups of people that are othered in America that are really oppressed in a lot of ways and I know all of my Irish and and Italian and whoever else like brethren love to do the we were immigrants and we were oppressed y'all shall were it was shitty but y'all forget that shit when it's time to talk about equality but that is kind of what happens in the north in these northern cities there is these police forces and obviously uh immigrants aren't slaves so there's not this capturing that's happening they're not kidnapping people but there is this abuse of power to police these people that americans did not want them in this country they were catholic they just represented all the things that they that like the pilgrims and all these other europeans left england left europe behind for yeah so then we get into the 1900s. Yeah, because in the 1900s is also where the collective sense of whiteness really comes about. Cause, because yes. before it was the Negroes and mm-hmm. them at the bottom, but like we don't really fuck with the Irish or Germans no. or anybody else, or Italians or all that. Like America was made to be ruled by wasps. the English. And the I wasps. Huh? The wasps. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? Yes. And so I actually have the Oxford series of the British Empire. There's four big-ass books, and I'm still in the first one. But they start talking about the colonies and when they come here. And in that, you know, because the British are that full of themselves, that they have an Oxford series on their empire itself. (laughs) Let's make sure we recognize that. They did a lot of shit. They needed But the American colonies were made to be profited from by the English very specifically, the English were the capitalists that drove this. The Scottish were like the middle managers. You know, a couple of them might have had some big ties, but they were workers. The Irish were there. Um, yeah, and you still see, I mean, there's, granted, this is not a European thing. Like, this is not a European podcast. We are not about to deep dive the shit between the fucking UK. But the Irish are still, like, there's still beef. You know, the English and the Irish have a longstanding beef with each other and England just in general is kind of an oppressive state like it's an oppressive country they've wreaked havoc on almost every place that they've touched down and I mean it's arguable to say that white privilege wouldn't exist if the English weren't so goddamn full of themselves for sure because the French have done shit the Spanish have done shit the Germans the Dutch they've all done shit and none of it should be ignored none of it should be like oh well they're they just weren't as bad they all committed atrocities, but England, yo, like, <laughs> they fucking take the goddamn cake. <laughs> for real. They do. Because in order for the British Empire to have the empire where the sun never sets, 
You gotta kill a lot of people to pull that off. You, yeah, your empire has to literally span the globe, and it did at one point. But to get off of giving them so much attention, yeah. Um, this in the 1900s. Also, there's some very big changes that happen, and there's a particular person, August Volmore, who is considered by many the founding father of modern policing. And from what I read about him, he was actually like a pretty good guy. He was a humanitarian. He was described as he brought in various reforms that talked about adding more social work elements to police. And if there are people who are like super pro police listening to this, I would love for you to make sure you take that part home. He was very into the social work end of police and having police be, you know, well, better trained in psychology, um, sociology, and to actually have them be well-educated, because up to that point, they weren't really educated. And so he wanted them to, you know, be able to go to college and learn and be more well-learned in doing a lot of this. And so he brought a lot of these changes on. He actually even brought about being able to do more community, uh, in the community policing, and being able to, you know, actually be of good service and use. Mm -hmm. And him himself, he has some interesting stuff about him. So he was the uh, former chief of police in Berkeley, and in his developments of changing their police force, those methods actually spanned across the country like wildfire. Like a lot of places caught on to that. He was a war hero when uh, the U.S. had uh, some war with Spain. He came back as a war hero, and it gave him a lot more political clout to be able to do a lot of this going into the 20s. He actually hired one of the first black police officers, a guy named Walter Gordon, and was one of the first people to hire women as officers, even as early in the early 20th century. Shout out to you, August. And so he, um, kind of ending his life in the 50s, as it transitioned in the 20s and 30s, uh, we'll talk about Jagger Hoover in a oh, second. Oh, God. <laughs> who kind of reframed policing once again. But this uh. man I was actually on a board for euthanasia. He was actually interested in euthanasia, and he got diagnosed with Parkinson's in the 40s. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, I can't say it's unfortunate, he decided to end his own life um, and donate his body to science. I think that's pretty interesting. I know there are there are a lot of people that don't believe in euthanasia. They kind of think that you should write out your life no matter the circumstances. Um, I don't necessarily believe that. Just one, because I'm someone that believes in full autonomy. And I think for him, I think that it's hard to be someone that has lived a life, especially when you've done shit, and especially if you were pretty independent, to have something take a hold of you to the point where you can't even live your life anymore. His suicide may be looked at as tragic because it was a suicide, but I think that that was more, I don't want to say in him keeping his dignity, but him knowing that like, I, I, I'm not going to recover from this. Like, it's not going to be like in three years, there's going to be a pill and I'm going to be better. Like, this is just going to be the rest of my life. And I can't, function like this I don't want to function like this so I'm not going to so I do think while people hear suicide they have all types of feelings rightfully so I don't necessarily think that 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 this is a, a negative thing you know I thought it was very interesting yeah I think it's interesting as well 
also this isn't a this isn't a podcast about fucking uh more it is a conversation and a podcast about morals and ethics to a degree but not those <laughs> we're not going to yeah. be talking about euthanasia but i did think that was an interesting feature about yeah. him and he did really help make the police less corrupt because it was actually a big problem in the 1800s with police being tied with certain politicians of mm-hmm. cities who were in charge of them all and so there was a lot of corruption to be had with police um, and their ties to the politicians there. And one thing that differs from the British style of policing that you know a lot of American government is factioned after in certain areas was that we, there's a lot of more politics involved with our police, at least so the research had shown. And so as he took over and worked on being able to reorganize how departments were, and reorganize how the training of the officers were and making sure that they were well-educated people and you know had a better moral standing, the policing culture shifted in general to be a lot more efficient. Yeah, and to be more of police. Like, honestly, before this, they were kind of just like, I don't know what kind of structure there was. It was, granted, a lot of things still today are very state-by-state, um, city or principality or municipal municipality yeah municipality um they can kind of operate how they deem fit but there was no real standard across the board it was like people were just doing whatever they wanted and that's still happening today but he kind of sets the tone for a standard to happen yeah before him oversight was also much lower yeah and he was very big on getting the officers on bicycles he was uh he didn't invent it per se but he created methods and um and pushed out methods to have officers actually on bikes so that they could be more efficient and get around more now, as we get into the 20s and 30s, we have a certain gentleman, J. Edgar Hoover, oh who is the creator of the FBI, who gets involved with policing, and it goes under another iteration. And so this iteration, he actually went and brought patrols to be a thing with the cars, which kind of went against what August Vollmer wanted because with being on a bike, you can be much more engaged with the community that you're in. You can have a better pulse on it. When you're in a car, not so much. And so he brought in patrols and under this idea that the more patrol that you have, the more crime will be deterred and citizens will feel safer. And he was also very big into this aspect of very offensively crime fighting and i say that specifically is an offensively crime fighting it was a very interesting study in 1971 done in kansas city where they actually had done research with a police department and it showed that two of his premises were kind of false one citizens (laughs) citizens did not feel more safe with more patrols because what actually happened was they decreased the patrols and they found that with even a 60% decrease in the number of patrols, citizens did not report any feeling any more safe or less safe, and the actual instance of crime did not go down. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of very aggressive feelings about Jagger Hoover that I think are warranted. First off... I meant to say they did not go up when the presence of the patrol cars went away. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. First of all... Fuck you. 
Um, I hope you're somewhere in the pits of hell having the worst time ever. <sighs> I'm just going to say this because I feel like this will cover my anger and frustration. And there's another word for hate that I just I can't think of, like the synonym for it. I don't want to say hate, but I have very aggressive feelings toward this man and the fact that he was able to hold down his position as like the director for the bureau investigation and then what later becomes the fbi for 50 fucking years is disgusting to the point where he's like he has more power than the president's like he's intimidating them he's basically saying fuck out of here i'm doing what i want fuck you Y'all actually answer to me. Fuck him. And, like, seriously, like, he's, like, emperor almost in, in a weird way. No one ever, like, we don't get into how nasty this dude was and how he went unchecked literally for decades. A white man should have never been in power from the 20s to the 70s over a fucking Bureau of Investigation. The times and just, like, the general culture of the of society like america looked very different in 1924 i think is the year those that he, rolling 20s before the great depression yeah um up into 75 or 77 i forget what year he dies but that is when he loses his position it's because he died it wasn't because he retired and like went off to fucking florida and was hanging out by the pool no he was removed from his position because of his death and there's just no way that anyone should be able to hold a position like that unchecked for so long when you have so much power. So it's not a fucking surprise that he abused his power. He was wrong. He got fuck. He got a lot of people killed. A lot of our faves, Malcolm X. Maybe he didn't orchestrate it, but had a hand in it. He knew what was happening. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Literally, like they were going after them as terrorists. They were calling them terrorists. And we'll get to that. And so when we look at certain things that he did to policing, not even just FBI-wise, but policing, was created this more aggressive culture to it that Vollmer, at least from you know doing the research and looking at it, wanted a more intellectual pursuit of policing almost and a more humanitarian way of doing it for white people, not for everybody, <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah. Um, but... Hoover was much more into this aspect of, it makes me think of Batman. I don't know why that just comes to mind. You think he's Batman? No, 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 no. But like the uh, more of the ability to fight crime better and having all these tools because there's an increased militarization. Now, Batman's not militant, but Uh, in the sense of having a lot of tools at their disposal. It's like kind of private... uh... I, I was going to say militarization, but I don't want to say that. But but in essence, having all of this equipment and all these gadgets um, to fight crime, mm-hmm. which is interesting because Batman is a vigilante. <laughs> so it really mm-hmm. opens the door for... That's a great comparison. It's like an institution that is state-backed, that is the police you know it's like government sanctioned police one would think they would need less shit because they're backed by the government and yet 
the exact opposite happens. Yeah. And there's actually a particular thing where in the 30s, there's all these big, you know, old-time gangsters. And he actually is, um, you know, mentioned and written about to have originally hired a bunch of these kind of intellectual types. But they didn't have the... Street smarts. Street smarts and kind of the aggression to handle these big-time criminals. You're not growing up in... I don't know, like New Hampshire and then maybe going to Harvard and then fucking hitting the streets of New York City to deal with the mob. It's yeah. just not going to happen. <laughs> and, and so he created these changes to hire people who are more into manhunting and people who have proven their ability to handle, you know, shooting sprees and getting into very violent uh, clashes who could actually handle some of these mobsters. Niggas have been in the streets yeah. once or twice. And so he actually, in many cases, decreased the education requirement mm-hmm. because, again, some of the people who are going to be that street smart and, and, and who have already might have had a criminal background but wanted to go and be in the police or just had more rougher upbringings might not have been the ones who were going to go to college. Hell no. This is the 20s and 30s. Education is like far down the list of things that people are doing. Yeah, there were not, you know, you could not shackle yourself to $100,000 of student debt in the 20s and 30s. I mean, college also didn't cost that much because it was only white men that were allowed to go for the most part. But but the money that it cost, you couldn't afford that. You couldn't get loans. So you had to be affluent to go. And if you were that affluent, you probably could not deal with some of these. Yeah, a lot of people didn't even make it through high school. Just because, you know, they like maybe made it to the eighth grade. They learned fundamentals. They know how to read and write. The rest of that shit is like, I will learn it through living my life. Like, I don't need to be in school. And education, which is a whole other thing, but that is definitely something for the wealthy and for the privileged. Like, going off to college, the like day-to-day people is relatively new, which is why it's so fucking annoying that it's so expensive now. But that is another rant for another day. (laughs) And so this is just one way where you get a more, um, you know, aggressive style of officer. Now, when we move into this next part, we're looking at like the civil rights era. And we're going to look at the FBI really quickly and kind of the civil rights era. And so J. Edgar Hoover has this aspect of Pro, And the reason I want to bring this up is looking at where the mindset of the policing in government oversight is starting to go. And so there's a particular program we want to kind of talk about, um, COINTELPRO, which is basically this counterintelligence program where they would, there were a lot of movements, labor movements, um, anti-Vietnamese war movements in the 60s, as well as the prominence of the Black Panther Party. And this became now an effort to police the people who were running the communities. There were a lot of violence of police officers against uh, blacks. I mean, constantly throughout U.S. history, but very big increase during the civil rights era. As, as Savannah mentioned in another episode, as black people make huge momentous strides in progress, there tends to be a lot of violence that happens against us. And there's, there's a lot of state-backed violence against a lot of these leaders who were not even just the Black Panther Party. They were like the cream of the crop, but there were plenty of other movements similar that were very local based in different cities and i think because you have black people fleeing the south and going to they're flooding these northern cities that maybe technically the north um 
we look at the North as being like, oh, Freeman's land. Like everyone was running and escaping to the North to live like a happy and free life. They still had a lot of shit to deal with. And so civil war happens and it ends. Reconstruction happens and it ends very quickly. And black people are living in terror in the South through the late 1800s and early 1900s. So you have a lot of people blacks in mass like by the hundreds during this time that are moving to different cities so whereas you had this issue with um the police or the people that are acting as police in the south the north is developing uh police as well and they're kind of like i mentioned their focus is mainly on immigrants but then now you have all these black people from the south moving into these cities and they're moving into cities where white people live and so now you have this redlining that's happening. It's like, okay, y'all can move here, but y'all have to stay in this area. People are competing for jobs. You have this beef arising kind of between black people and immigrants because black people are now taking some of the jobs that immigrants had historically worked and they are now fighting for unions and black people are taking the jobs because it's they're getting paid way more and these factories and they were ever getting paid in the south the sharecroppers or whatever they were doing and so you have this vision happening even more between the immigrant and the black community and now these police that there are black people that are living in these cities but not to the scale and not to the degree and so now hundreds and hundreds of black people are flocking to these major cities so the police force in these cities are kind of adapting in a negative way towards the the new blacks in their city as well so yeah and it it goes further as the 20th century progresses into this very aggressive and offensive style of policing and this cointel program where they would go and try to infiltrate these groups he's actually quoted with saying that the black panther party at the time of the late 60s was one of the uh, greatest threats to american security and cited not them having guns but because of their free breakfast program because it humanized them in such a way that did not fit the agenda and that was actually worse because here is this uh party that's militant and armed that is you know giving food out for free in the country and yes uh you may or may not have heard but this is the predecessor to the actual like free breakfast programs that were rolled out um, throughout the entire country later in the end of the 20th century. Yeah, we don't, when you talk about like the Black Panther Party, you don't know, like WIC comes about because of them. Like like the women, infant, child shit that like mothers can go and get formula, they can get food, they can, they, they can get shit to support their baby. That starts because of the Black Panther Party, but they are never talking about all these good things that they're doing and even the reason why black the black panther party started in the first place we can't trust y'all to come in here and police us y'all don't know how y'all don't and y'all are not coming in here to protect and serve you're coming in here to destruct and Mm -hmm. to destroy so fuck you we'll deal with this shit over here if someone over here steps out of line we got it y'all stay over there and we're over here we're good but they weren't having that. And in reading, actually, uh, Asada Secure's autobiography, which if you haven't read that, you should totally read that. Um, it's a really good book. She is still alive in Cuba. In Cuba. 
And uh, she's been down there for like, what, 40, 50 years. But, um, they, you know, talks about actually this internal policing, but also when this COINTEL program happens, because now they are trying to paint different leaders of these groups who are trying to fight for better policies and better way of living as government informants so people stop trusting them or planning their own informants in there and doing all these things to create this internal these internal problems to dissolve these groups and to a large extent they actually kind of succeed and they do this in many ways and to cap out just this culture of offensive look there's um something that we'll talk about in detail another time but this was horrifically hilarious to read about and it was about this FBI instructor mm-hmm. um, I think it was Bill Gothorpe and you should just look at some of the things that he said that were brought about through some of their trainings in the FBI yeah. in 2011 their offensive yeah. hold on stop he 2011 <laughs> this isn't like some nigga from the 20s that just didn't have the information available like he was saying this shit when Google was accessible 24-7 so was Yahoo, so was NBC, or no, it's MSN has a search engine. Any search engine available, like he could have just Googled some shit. No, that's not what he did. He, we will get into that. I, I feel like that is worth deep diving because it's just so fucking messy. I don't even want to say messy because that implies like fun drama like sometimes niggas just want to be messy because it should be funny like this isn't funny this impacted billion mm, i don't know how large the islam population is but however large it is it impacted all of them and yeah i think uh he really really it just goes to show that um depending on what your message is, will really dictate how vetted you have to be to be able to get in front of people and fucking speak. Yes. Um, I, I'll, 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 you should look up Bill Gothrop and... Um, give, them, give them something An small, FBI just so they training. Know. And so he actually compared handling Islam in the Middle East to how you defeat the Death Star from Star Wars. And so in reference to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, this, he did a lecture uh, in 2000 and I believe 11, and he talked about you know, the FBI response to the Middle East and Islam. And so in Gothrop's worldview, the struggle against Al-Qaeda is really just an afterthought in a broader war. The group that knocked down the World Trade Center and rammed the jet into the Pentagon is a mere distraction in Gothrop's worldview. These are actually the just little pieces of a bigger problem, which is Islam. And he actually it, says Islam itself. Islam itself. And he actually makes this analysis with Star Wars and wanting to say you should actually discredit and attack Islam. And this is the FBI trainer saying this. He says, quote, We waste a lot of analytic effort talking about the type of weapon, the timing, the tactics, all of that is relevant. If you have an Islamic motivation for actions. And so this is somebody in the FBI, as recently as in the last 10 years, having training and actually giving, this was a speech he gave, talking about their motive and how they want to handle that aggressive and offensive 
and offensive in the sense of we're going to strike first. Yeah. And if you like, granted, we did say, well, we will touch back on this because it's just so fucking out of this world. But if you decide that you want to look some shit up earlier, I think for me, it's just so clear through his teachings and the quotes and the articles that, you know, we kind of read and that you shared. He knows absolutely nothing about Islam itself. He is just fucking taught. It, it almost sounds like he's based these ideas off of reading the headlines off of Facebook articles. And that was it. And that was the basis for all of his information. He doesn't know shit about shit. He doesn't know anything about the religion of Islam, but is able to stand in the FBI as a person to listen to, as a person with knowledge, as a person that should be respected in his kind of advisement should be followed in the video that that speech was leaked from the audience was mostly law enforcement officers so now you have people that are going to hit the streets you know to protect and serve having listened to his bullshit and so now they're going out and you see this rise in like Attacks and granted, it didn't start in in 2011. It happened earlier than that, but it's it's from these like these kind of ideas. You're blanketing all of Islam. You're you're to the point where you're saying Al Qaeda isn't the issue, ISIS, ISIS isn't the issue. The issue is Islam itself. So you don't have to know anything about Islam to say Islam is the issue itself. You can you're just going off of that. And then your listeners take it a step further where now they don't even know if they're going after an is, uh, a Muslim person. They see a brown person with a beard. They see a brown person with a head covering. Oh, you must be Muslim. Oh, you're a terrorist. Oh, I have the right to attack you. Fuck you, Gothrop. Fuck you. I don't know if you're alive or dead. You're probably still alive, but... You get two very aggressive fuck yous from me. (laughs) And so in this era that we are in now, we are in this, as I look at it, this last era of policing that we're, you know, leading up to right now, the war on drugs era. And the war on drugs style of policing and the policies that came about are the reason that Breonna Taylor was shot in her home and all these other Dozens and hundreds of instances of police violence have happened because of the war on drugs and how many families were wrecked over a failed effort and like research back failed effort. And so the war on drugs were uh, something that came about in the late 70s and 80s and it, it created two very big things, but they result in a militant policing style. They result, first of all, in the creation of SWAT teams, which are to go and conduct drug raids, and then stop and frisk-like policies to where you can look at somebody and say, hey, I want to check you for drugs. Because when you think about crime, and there's a very good article I read, and when you look at crime, there's a victim, right? And it's, you know, if somebody gets murdered, or somebody who killed them, someone gets raped, or someone who raped them, so there's a victim and there's a perp, and you have to go find that person. Right. When you're fighting drugs, 
you're trying to find property. You're trying to find this thing. And, well, the reason there's drugs is because there's drug addicts. And so now mm-hmm. when you think about arresting people for possession who may have been users, especially like marijuana, now you or even crack cocaine, you're arresting somebody who was like their own victim. But you had to go and search them, and which leads to abuse and to find it. You are conducting no-knock warrants to go into people's homes and find that there's no drugs there, but you've destroyed their home. You have, you know, potentially shot them when you came in barging. Yeah. And they did not actively do something against somebody. Yeah, and and we're not even getting into the part on the war on drugs and on how these a lot of these drugs were disseminated into communities. Um which That's is a whole another thing in itself. <laughs> but yeah, there's this war on drugs where it's like, okay, maybe there is a drug problem. So say there's a drug problem, right? The way to deal with it, which now, you know, today we've seen the light and now we know, oh, it's a mental illness. Oh, you need rehab. Oh, you need a therapist. Oh, you need help. (laughs) And I stand with that. You know, I think that a lot of times people self-medicate because they don't know how to deal with some shit that's happening around them. I think that um, the respect and the importance held on mental health is something that is new. And so we're looking at the reasons why people become drug addicts a bit differently today in terms of the war on drugs and mass for the most part. And I do think it is mainly because the war on drugs is now affecting middle class white people in the way that it is like they're dying by the boatloads because doctors were over prescribing fucking pain meds or a kid got into their parent or their grandparents medicine cabinet that had pain meds and now they're on heroin in fucking LA who knows I don't know there's all types of stories and reasons right but in the 70s when fucking Nixon who if any president was if any president and what they presented to the table should be maybe brought back to the table to see how we can fix this, because maybe they were doing some shady shit, it should be fucking Nixon. He got impeached. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, I just... Ugh. You gotta be doing some fucked up shit to get impeached. I mean, he. I mean, they found out that he was, you know, the whole Watergate situation... We're not talking about Watergate today, but yeah, he rolls out this fucking war on drugs and goes after the users, you know, and only certain users, only certain drugs and goes after people that he believes might be selling the shit. And really, you know, today in hindsight, those kind of situations should be looked at like this fucking supply and demand you know if there's a demand for it someone is going to supply it and we live in a capitalist country you can make money off of everything so there's money to be made in selling drugs so niggas are selling fucking drugs because someone wants them and someone's going to pay money for them and when you which is another conversation don't leave much open to um in terms of opportunity you're going to get what you can take the war on drugs has done a lot and we're not even going into all of those aspects. Like, just the police situation in general, they 
yeah, the war on drugs really opens the door for police to really do what the fuck they want to because drugs are suspected. Stop and frisk. Oh, we, I don't know. They, we, we thought, you know, they were up to something. They could have had drugs in their pocket. Some of you right now are listening to this podcast and maybe you're out for a walk in your neighborhood. Maybe you're out going for a run as many people have told me they listen to this when they're going for their runs. Stop and frisk. A police officer could look at you, think you're suspicious, stop you right now while you're listening to me talk, Mm -hmm. while you're listening to Savannah talk to you, pull you over, and then frisk you. And frisking means they can put their hands up every crevice of your body. On the fucking street. In public. In public. To try to find drugs. To try to find drugs. And don't let, like... The whole, oh, I didn't hear you. I had headphones in. Oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't apply. And I want you to really viscerally, if, if you're somebody who gets the point, maybe you don't think about this too hard. But if you're like, what really is stop and frisk? Think about right now someone taking both of their hands and are coming up both of your legs. They pat between your legs. They pat under your underarms. They pat around your neck. They pat across your chest. They pat in your stomach. They pat every part of your body that you don't want nobody touching to try and find something. And think about how humiliating that is. And for women, because most of the time these police officers are men, they use that opportunity to not just, I don't want to say not just search for drugs, because most of the time even what men of color, black men that they're stopping and frisking, they're just looking for anything, even if it's just to fuck up someone's day, you know? Oh, you're giving me attitude, now I can be aggressive. I don't have any drugs on me, why are you stopping me? Because I can. You patted me down and I don't have anything on me, why are you Why are you still stopping me? Because I can. Get on the floor now because you pissed me off. And for women, that gets put into a whole other thing because now you have men touching you and they're using it, oh, I'm looking for drugs, but they're touching in a way it's clear. There's no drugs there. And You're just might, fucking touching me. And they might do that in front of your husband. And your husband can't do shit. And they might do that to your wife in front of you just because they don't like you, because they're having a bad because they day. Can. And because they can. Because they, I don't want to say because they can, but because they, because doing so, they will not, uh, reap any repercussions so then they can and there were or they a, feel they can there were a lot of policies that have been put in place to allow them that power and we will get to that I have a couple of stats for you all between 1982 and 2007 the number of arrests for drug possession tripled from 500,000 to 1.5 million another stat for you Racial ethnic disparities and drug-related arrests have also intensified. In 1976, 22% of drug-related arrests were from blacks. 77% of these were from whites. And then you insert CIA, crack cocaine, and, you know, that whole jazz. And, you know, that's another podcast. When the black population is only, what, 12, 12% 13? At the time. I think 12% when this, yeah, when this and study happened. 1992, now this was 20 years ago almost. 
Over 20 1992. years ago. That's the year I was born. Same. That's the year you were born. You know we are not 20, Donald. You're really, you really don't want niggas to know you were pushing 30. <laughs> no, I mean, forgetting that like the 80s and 90s were that many years ago. It seems like 10 years ago. And um, 1992, the year we were born. 77% of these arrests, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, okay, I stand corrected. 40% of those arrests, up from 22%, so almost double, were on blacks. And white arrests accounted for 59%. So there's a decrease. There's a decrease in white arrests. And there's a almost doubling in percent of black uh, of arrests of blacks for drug possessions, which clearly shows this aggressive targeting effort. And yet there are plenty of white people who are currently in their 40s and 50s who were teens at this time who have stated publicly, if the police would have searched and frisked them the way that they did you know, people in LA and New York and Atlanta and these other major cities, they would have been had their asses in prison too. Yeah. And so the war on drugs has been statistically shown a failure. And while there was a decrease in overall crime in the 90s, there's actually been some research that shows, yeah, maybe it was police presence. Maybe it was actually, there's a very strong correlation between the presence of nonprofits and community resources in a neighborhood and a decrease in crime. Surprise. So not to say that correlation is causation, but correlation's correlation. Mm -hmm. And when you think about these movements talking about defund the police and refund the communities, it's not necessarily to get rid of public safety. No one wants to get rid of public safety. People, what makes a society function with an organized group of people who don't know each other in the millions is a degree of safety. When we talk about why black people don't feel safe in the U.S., it's because we don't feel that we really have this guaranteed safety to just go about our day. Yeah, it's not because we don't think that the po- the the idea of the police, like remove our kind of feelings towards America and what the police has been, the theory of what the police are supposed to be, that is needed. You do need people to protect and serve. There are like maniacs running around sometimes. There are serial killers, there are people that are raping, abusing children, abusing their partners, theft, armed robbery. Like there are reasons that the police are necessary. However, the problem is they have been allowed to abuse their power and not be checked. They've been allowed to carry weapons that could kill someone and not be checked for it. That's the problem. And especially when you think about where in these communities where there's a high rate of police, communities that are almost over-policed, if that money was put into maybe other after-school programs that wasn't football and fucking basketball, and even in those, all of that is kind of being paid by the taxpayer, so the people of the city. So if the people in that neighborhood aren't making a lot of money, only a certain amount of money is going to the school, maybe only a certain amount of money is going to the, after the, the sporting program. So then they're left with kind of second-rate equipment and we all know when a school is losing money the first thing to fucking go is arts 
And so if you're not naturally a sports player, if you don't maybe fuck with basketball or football, which is what they tend to always keep, and I'm not shitting on basketball or football, they're both important sports, they save a lot of kids. But think about all the other kids that football and basketball wasn't for them, they weren't able to be safe. They didn't have a, a something to do after school. They didn't have another program. And you know, an idle, what is it? What the fuck is the thing? An, an idle time? Idle mind is, idle devil's, mind is playground. a de- devil's playground. For sure. What else the fuck are you going to do? Maybe your mom's not there. Maybe your dad's not there. They're at work. They're doing whatever. You have all this time on your hands and you don't have anything to do with it. You're going to fucking find yourself some trouble. That's not hard to do. Mm-hmm. That phrase, you stay out of trouble, has been used for kids for centuries, millennia, for 12-year-olds and teenagers just because mischief is easy to get into. There's curiosity and there's things to break and whatever. And so there is a lot that goes into showing communities that have a lot of resources, things for youth to do. This actual study talks about the more nonprofits and community civil organizations there were, uh, that's focused on youth, community education, and health care that there were in any given neighborhood per 1,000 people, there were drastic decreases in crimes. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and so when you think about these suburban neighborhoods where people love their police and like police do this thing where I guess they rescue cats out of trees. That is this like long-standing stereotype that they rescue cats out of trees. I've never God, I seen that I thought that was that the fire life. department for word. I know, I thought it was, no, I thought it was police, but there's this No, sense. I'm just saying, like, but, word. <laughs> and um, that's not how it happens in the, in the poor areas. No. And so there's this sense of, in the nice areas, in your cul-de-sacs, in the suburbs, in your affluent areas, the police are there to keep the people that don't belong out, to mm-hmm. keep your property safe, and to keep you guys safe. But they're not worried about what you're doing. In the poor areas, it's about a Offensively, and ahead of time, trying to find the crime in the area. When they, my my gym is located in Wilkinsburg, and it's a you know poor suburban area. Mm-hmm. It's 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 an urban suburban area. It's one of these weird places in Pittsburgh that like you don't really know is not part of the city unless you know where the city actually ends. Yeah. And when the police drive through there, they're looking for stuff. Mm-hmm. When the police drive through Fox Chapel, they're not looking for anything unless it looks like it doesn't belong. Which and I so, feel more or less safe there. Yeah, which is so interesting because there's this idea that like the police don't show up until after a crime, but in certain neighborhoods they go seeking out crime. You know, like they go seeking out. Oh, you look like you were up to something, and so we're trying to prevent crime. Are you? <laughs> How do I look like I'm up to something? I was just walking down the street. It was literally just gone to Seven Eleven because I wanted some Cheetos. Like. <laughs> What do I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, seriously, like, this actual, like, sense of looking is totally a thing. And um, so this is, you know, we think about this week that we're recording this with the officers for Breonna Taylor and the headache that this is and the disappointment and, like, I legitimately, like, was just, out of it Wednesday when I saw that come across because they were willing to pay $12 million in hush money to this family. They were willing to drag this out for six months. They were willing to get the a criminal that they were looking for, who they'd already found by that point, who was not there and did not have anything to do with her at that time. 
to try and get a plea deal to say that he was getting drugs mailed to her house and he turned that down. They went to that extreme and did all that to be able to not say that they did any wrong to her, that they literally one officer got punished or charged, whatever, because a bullet went into a neighbor's apartment and they went out of their way because of this war on drugs effort and all these policies that are in place to protect them to not acknowledge the wrongdoing there. Yeah. How do you pay a family $12 million and never mention that you did anything wrong? Because you could have just said, yo, we fucked up. We understand that even if she was receiving the drugs that this person was sending in the mail, that shouldn't constitute murder. If you think that she's involved in a fucking drug ring, arrest her and take her to jail and then question her. But no, it was, we are coming in for a specific reason and we're just going to like act accordingly. And especially knowing, I, I feel like, not I feel like, I mean, it's true. The police rarely get charged unless you're a person of color. Because if you're a person of color and you de- and you decide to do some wild shit to a, a civilian and they end up murdered or injured, you're going to jail. Like, don't get lost on that. There have been plenty of situations with police of color um, killing accidentally or whatever a civilian, specifically white civilians, and they get charged and they go to jail. And this happens quickly. This does not get dragged on. No, to the point where it doesn't even make the fucking news because it's like they're on it. Like there's no dragged out process. No, they're on top of that shit. So the least that fucking Louisville could have done was, yo, that was our bad. We were looking for someone. We were looking for someone that we believe to be dangerous, that we believe to be doing X, Y, and Z. And so we came into the situation prepared to face someone that we believe to be dangerous and our lives to be at stake, even though it was, what, like 2 a.m.? It was in the middle of the night. It was in the middle of the night. They did not knock, so they got to, whether they announced that they were police or not, people were asleep. And yo, yo, people run up into people's houses every day. You can say you're the police. Who gives a fuck? You're, who's if running? I want to rob your ass, I would say that. Exactly. Too. Like, yo, I'm the police. I got a right my, to be here. Don't run in my shit in the middle of the night. My girl is sleeping. What do you think I'm doing? I'm going to protect the house. And I feel like it's hilarious that some of the people who are defending these police actions are the same people who are so into Second Amendment rights to have a gun. The Second Amendment is about protecting citizens from the tyranny of governments. The same fucking people that were, yes, George Zimmerman, stay in your fucking ground, now all of a sudden don't believe in fucking stay in your ground rights. Because she was black. And the man and her boyfriend was black. And they shot back. Fuck y'all. <laughs> like, wow, I had a lot of fuck yous. You did, you did. I gave out several today. You gave out several. Fuck all y'all. J. Edgar Hoover, fuck you. Uh, the Louisville police, that old old boy, I don't even know what his fucking name oh, is. Daniel fuck Cameron. You. Daniel so, Cameron. Remember that video I sent Fuck you. you. There's this video on Instagram. There's this dude, Myson the General. Um, he's a part of the group until Freeman, until Freedom, 
And, um, you know, while some political activists sometimes can be really politically proper, I appreciate that he's not. <laughs> so he made this funny-ass video ripping Daniel Cameron. He's, what, what else could you do? You, say, you just make fun of the guy at a certain point. And he was like, he's a bitch-ass nigga. And it was a quote. He said, he's the type of nigga to pay $25 for a salad and not ask no questions. <laughs> And there I might be some hilarious. people that are like, what's wrong with paying $25 for a salad? There's nothing. But you might have some questions about what the fuck is on this salad as to, like, why is it $25? The most I ever paid for a salad was $15. And that salad was loaded. I was at Honey Grow in East Liberty. And I stacked on so much stuff. And the salad came to $15. But my questions were answered because I just kept clicking on stuff. Yeah, Daniel Cameron, fuck you. He's a bitch ass nigga. Um, yeah, word. So I think that that was a good a good little back history. I, I appreciate you for taking the reins on that. I honestly did not have the wherewithal to go through that. I think it's really important information, but I think it's something that you realize today through going through your research. It's like you read one article. And now it's like, oh, I have five other things that I need to research now that were presented. Like, I need to do a deep dive. What is this about? I don't know. Let's keep looking. Um, we went through over 30 articles just to put this episode together. Yeah. Crazy. Um, so I hope you guys learned some shit about the history of police. I think we're definitely going to come back and maybe build out um a little bit more i don't want to say necessarily a whole series but we're definitely going to come back to the police and just kind of talking about what the fuck they are which we did today and what they're doing and our relationship with them and who they should be and just really understanding like the magnitude of this institution i think there's this movement of defund the police that's happening right now and there are a lot of people that don't understand why that movement's happening. And like we said earlier, it's not because we don't think that the police are useful or necessary because there should be people around to protect and serve. But like the Black Panther Party did, we need to be protected and served by people that actually care about us, that actually want to protect us and serve us, not people that just want to come in and flaunt their power and tell us what to do and how to do it, not people that are going to stop us on the middle of the street and strip search us, or maybe not necessarily strip searching was happening on the street, but searching people aggressively, stopping them, and doing it with such force that it fucks up their day. We want to be able to live in a place where we see the police and the first thought isn't, damn, let me get away from them as soon as possible. We want to live in a world where there's some real shit happening and we want to call on the police and know that they're not going to attack us first, the person that called them in the first place. These are things that happen. These are things that black people and people of color have to deal with every time they think about interactions as a woman. This whole situation with fucking Meg the Stallion, I don't know what's going on. I don't know either one of those niggas, right? So I don't want to talk like I was there. But this idea that like women will protect men that are abusing them, that are hurting them, that have done them wrong because they know that while this man may have hurt them, they still don't want them to die at the hands of police because of racism. They just don't want that man to be a statistic. If I'm being abused, I want to be able to call the police and them listen to me and 
take this man to jail, take, do whatever is necessary without it becoming a whole thing, without him necessarily dying. Sometimes that's the case. That's a whole nother conversation about how you feel ethically about like murder and shit. But someone should be able to call the police and not fear for their lives. Someone should be able to, everyone should be able to look at the police and look at them and think, you're here to protect me. You're here to protect and serve my community. You're not here to assault me or be aggressive towards me or or kill me you know and if something like that happens you shouldn't be able to walk away and continue to do your job without any repercussions at all yeah you get put on leave but you're still getting paid so essentially you got a a vacation maybe you're a little nervous because you don't know what's going to happen because shit just sometimes be up in the air but you're on a paid, you're paid to like go sit down somewhere. Just you need to get out of our face while like the public simmers down. And then you can come back on as a cop. That shouldn't be the case at all. So, yeah. So we're going to look at some of these statutes that uh, protect some of them in the future. But if you want to have some time to do some research between now and then, a couple things for you to look at. The 50A bill in New York City that just got repealed this year. Look at what it is. 1033, also look at what that is. Please do. And take some time to look at what qualified immunity is because Please that's do. totally a thing that um, is actually a bipartisan effort to try to get rid of it. So um, make sure you also look at these things. The like button on whatever platform you're listening to. Yes. The subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. Yes. Whether it's Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever. And then definitely the share button. Share this on your Instagram, your Facebook, mm-hmm. your Twitter. Share this with your friends and family who need to learn more about what the police is. Know more a bit about the people yet yeah, you are either trying to protect their livelihoods of, you know, Blue Lives Matter, if you're, if you're listening to this still, or the people <laughs> that you are, you know, uh, trying to get laws changed about or get rid of them altogether. Learn a little bit about the history of them. Yeah. So thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with the Black Codes. Hope you enjoyed the uh, crazy stories at the beginning and you learned a good thing or two today. I know I did in researching this. We'll see you next time. Bye.